Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. To get along in society, we often have to hide our true feelings and just put on a happy face. A neighbor asks you how things are going. On bad days, you might be tempted to say, actually, things are rather shitty. But instead... Most of us grin and say, pretty good, how are you? But deep down, our true feelings are still there, dying to be let out. In her 1847 novel, Jane Eyre, Charlotte Bronte gave us a character who pushed against these cultural norms, refusing to suppress her full humanity. In my mind, I was about the age that Jane is when the novel begins, nine or ten, when I first encountered this book. And... I remember pulling down the book and opening it. And what was so distinctive about it was that it was clearly a grown-up book. It was long, very long. There were no pictures. But the voice at the beginning was this direct voice of a child. The first line is, there was no possibility of going for a walk that day. I think I was intrigued, as readers still are today, by the emphatic negativity This wasn't some cheerful child going like, it was a beautiful morning. The birds were singing. The sun was shining. I was going to go for a walk. This was about obstacles, being stymied. Everything outside and inside just seems like you're imprisoned and things are grim. So I think the immediacy of the voice, the fact that we're not told right away what color hair Jane has or what kind of dress she was wearing. She's a strong voice asserting a will and a viewpoint, but also a feeling of blockage and of being overcome and her path in life isn't going to be easy. I'm Sharon Marcus. I'm a professor of English and comparative literature at Columbia University, where I specialize in Victorian literature. For most of the 19th century, Queen Victoria ruled over the United Kingdom. She came to the throne in 1837 when she was only 18 years old and ruled until her death in 1901. The Victorian era is known for its class rigidity and moral strictness. Charlotte Bronte's protagonist Jane Eyre chafes against these norms and confronts readers with the question we all face in our lives, when to conform and when to rebel. I think it speaks to conflicts people have about, are you going to be governed by your head or your heart? Are you going to be autonomous and independent? Or are you going to let yourself be vulnerable in the ways that falling in love makes you vulnerable? These are timeless modern questions, certainly. And Jane Eyre is articulating them in ways that I think appeal to young men and young women today because she doesn't come at them from a super feminine point of view. She's in some ways asking, can I have what men have as a woman? Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. 
For this episode, I sat down with Professor Sharon Marcus to discuss Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre. Help us put this literature into context. When we say Victorian era, we do usually think of certain cliches that, like all cliches, have an element of truth in them. That this was a period of rigid morals, of a certain degree of repression, especially sexual repression, a period where class divisions were very firm and intense, hierarchical, not a lot of class mobility, a lot of poverty. This is the era of the the workhouse, the poorhouse. The poor are considered moral failures. That's, that's an association with this period. It's just very rigid moral code. This was also a time when there was a very clear distinction between the social roles of women and men. It's a period when men and women are by many people, not all, considered almost separate species. Men, the strong protectors who go out to work and compete. Women, the caring, altruistic, nurturing, selfless people who stay at home and take care of everybody. But of course, there's also class distinctions. So there's no sense that this quote-unquote angel in the house who is the prototypical Victorian woman is actually doing manual labor. That was for servants. And it's also a period where there are almost every, even lower middle-class family has some kind of servant. So that's another way that class distinctions are everywhere. Despite, or perhaps because of, its deep conservatism and class rigidity, the Victorian era was also a time of great change. Industrialization, urbanization, and scientific and technological advancement were in full swing. This is when trains and telegrams and electricity and the underground all are invented starting in the 1840s through the 1870s. The Victorian period is what gave us the theory of evolution. It gave us some of the earliest and most successful forms of modern European feminism. Real legal changes are happening during this period to the status of women. It's the period when women first access higher education. Of course, most uh, also very crucial to understanding the Victorian era and Jane Eyre is that it's an era of imperialism. The British are taking over the world. They see themselves as the bearers of civilization and in the name of civilization perpetrate many, many atrocities. And, you know, England is a very tiny country that is able during this era to see itself as at the center of the world. The Victorian age in our reputation, in our, in our kind of cultural memory, feels buttoned down and conservative in, in certain ways. Yet, of course, it's not surprising that it produced such extraordinary literature because all these changes were happening and raising new questions. Um, so um, why don't we begin with Charlotte Bronte's life? Um, what was her childhood and formation like? How did she become the person that wrote this text? So Charlotte Bronte is born before the Victorian era begins. She's born in 1816. She she's, was one of the um, older children, though not the oldest, in a family of ministers' children. Her father was from Ireland, but was a an Anglican minister in northern England, so in the Yorkshire area of England. Bronte grew up about 200 miles north of London 
Her childhood home is known as Haworth Parsonage, Haworth indicating the town, and Parsonage meaning the home of a minister. The Bronte family was somewhat physically isolated from the wider world, but culturally, they stayed in the loop. The family subscribed to magazines and newspapers from larger nearby cities, such as Leeds and Manchester. It was a period where print culture was expanding a lot. And just as today, the internet gives people in even the most remote locations a sense of the pulse of change and and what's happening right now. So too, in its own way, in the 1820s and 30s, did periodical magazines, which came out monthly and weekly, give people like the Brontes who were stuck up in Yorkshire a sense of all the latest publications, poetry, fashions, art exhibits, scientific discoveries, political developments, news of the world. Bronte grew up in a large family, but tragically, it didn't stay large for long. Her mother died when Bronte was just five years old. A few years later, her two older sisters died from tuberculosis. She grew up surrounded by death. Her childhood home, the parsonage, was literally right next door to the town cemetery because cemeteries are next to churches and the parsonage was next to the church. Because she was the child of a minister, she certainly grew up in a very literate and rhetorical culture. You know, the Bible was regular readings, but so was Shakespeare. So were the great British poets. And of course, her father gave weekly sermons. One of the most notable things about Charlotte Bronte's childhood was that she and her sister Emily and her sister Anne and her brother Branwell formed this quartet that then broke up into two duos of endless, endless childhood writing. The family's semi-isolated location provided the perfect environment for developing writers. The four younger siblings, with Charlotte as the oldest uh, and leader in many ways of that group, were writing serial fiction. I think Game of Thrones would be a good uh, analogy to give you a sense of what the stories were like. They had, they, they had, it was fantasy worlds with ongoing wars, political intrigue, weird sex things happening. And they wrote in microscopic handwriting and then would sew these things into books sometimes, these ongoing stories of the adventures of these protagonists in these lands that they named Angria and Gondol. In addition to entertainment, literature also provided a necessary escape for the four young Brontes. I think that everyone in the family was intensely private and introverted. So even though they were in a small house and all on top of each other, I think that reading also became a way and writing became a way for each of them to achieve a certain kind of privacy and selfhood. There is a sense that through reading, you would become your uh, the person that you truly were and that reading was an encounter of your imagination with the imaginations of others. Charlotte's time writing with her siblings was, in a sense, her literary schooling. In her teens, she attended Roe Head School and continued writing novellas and poems. It was almost impossible for women to pursue higher education at the university level in England at this time. So when she was 19, she went to work as a governess for a wealthy family, teaching and tutoring their children. But she never abandoned her true passion. She was very determined to be a writer, a published writer, and a paid writer. 
In the 1840s, Charlotte and her sisters, Emily and Anne, self-published a collection of their poetry. It is kind of extraordinary that you have this family where Emily writes Wuthering Heights, another archetypal classic. Charlotte writes Jane Eyre, Shirley, and Villette. And Anne wrote two also very excellent novels that really today probably only specialists would read, but they hold up. So the Emily and Anne decided to self-publish Wuthering Heights and a novel that Anne wrote called Agnes Grey because they couldn't get anyone to publish their books. Because they were women or because people didn't think this kind of story would work? We might be tempted today to think that um, gender was the reason that the Brontes had such trouble publishing their first works. That would not be accurate for a couple of reasons. First of all, novel writing was one of the few areas in Victorian England where women were just as successful as men. Novel writing was in fact associated with women in many ways. But the other reason we would be mistaken to think that gender was the main reason that the Bronte sisters couldn't get published is because they were worried that gender would prevent them from getting published. Not so much because women couldn't get published, but because they felt that they didn't write like other women, that they weren't as proper and restrained and polite as women were expected to be. So each sister adopted a pseudonym. Charlotte became Currer, Emily became Ellis, and Anne became Acton. And most people thought that the author, the authors of Wuthering Heights and Jane Eyre were men because the writing was so robust, because the characters were so uncouth and unrestrained. I mean, the, the the Brontes weren't wrong about how their writing was different. I would say not only from that of other women, but just different from the writing of the time. But unlike her sisters, Charlotte didn't want to self-publish her novel. She felt confident that she could get a proper publishing deal. So she sent the manuscript of Jane Eyre around to dozens of publishers. It kept getting rejected. She finally sent it to a fairly important publisher in London, Smith, Smith and Elder, in a package that showed all the other presses that had rejected it because paper was not in abundant supply. So she just kept wrapping it up again after receiving it back from a, a publisher with a rejection note. And the story goes that the in-house reader really liked it, gave it to the head editor who started it and then canceled all his appointments and read it straight through. He just couldn't stop reading it. They felt that they had a winning book on their hands and they did. The book was published, Jane Eyre was published in October, 1847. It was in a third edition by April of 1848, which was not usual at the time. Not that many books in the entire 19th century had that kind of success. Bronte's pen name fooled most readers, and even the publishers. People debated the gender of the author. Most came down on the side of it being a man. The publishers certainly thought they were dealing with a man. But a set of misunderstandings that included attributing Wuthering Heights 
and Agnes Gray to the author of Jane Eyre made Charlotte reveal herself. She actually went to London and just revealed herself to the publisher. She had a bit of a flair for drama, despite being in appearance a little mousy and demure, a bit like her heroine, Jane Eyre, who's small and little and pale, but flares up a lot. And at that point, she tried to keep her identity secret for a while, but it, it didn't last. And so eventually, not long after the book was published, people knew a woman had written it and they knew that woman was Charlotte Bronte. The success of Jane Eyre put Bronte on the map and gave her the freedom to keep writing, knowing that her novels would be published, paid for, and read. Right after Jane Eyre, she wrote a novel called Shirley that was actually about industrialization in Northern England. And her last novel, Villette, is about a young woman with no relatives who goes to Belgium and becomes a teacher. Charlotte Bronte then married relatively late in life, her father's curate, and in 1855 died, most likely because of complications due to pregnancy. So she died quite young. She died at age 39. But she certainly made her mark and achieved literary immortality with Jane Eyre. Take us through you know, the general arc of the story, the characters, and, um, you know, in your view, what was it that worked so well? The first act is Jane is a child, an orphan in a wealthy relative's household where she's unwanted, unloved, and I think by today's standards, certainly physically and emotionally abused. The beginning of the novel, we see her attacked by her horrible older cousin, John, and thrown into a red room where she sees a vision of her dead uncle. And a really important thing happens in the very first part of the book, which is she denounces her aunt for mistreating her. And this is one of the first but not last times in Jane Eyre where uh, an oppressed and somewhat timid, but also fiercely feeling protagonist rises up and speaks truth to power and says to her aunt, you, you don't treat me fairly. I hate you. I'll always hate you. So it's, it's very passionate. It's not a reasoned denunciation, but it's kind of intense for a nine, 10 year old child to be speaking to an adult this way. And it's one of the things that makes the book compelling, I think, right from the start. The aunt sends her to a school. So now we're in the next phase of Jane's life. She's still nine or 10. She's in a school called Lowood. There's no heat. There's no food. Everybody's starving. They can't wash because the water in their jugs has frozen overnight. There's again a sense of over the overwhelming unfairness of adult authorities. Then we fast forward and Jane's now 18 and she's become quite accomplished. She can draw very well. She knows some French. She has all the skills she would need to be able to teach the children of rich people who keep who keep their girls at home to be educated or who don't send their sons off to school right away. She could be a governess. And she decides she's restless and she just wants to leave the school and see a bit of the world. So she decides to advertise. She's like a lot of initiative on her part. She's like, I'm going to put in an ad and say like, yeah, I'm looking for work. And she gets a position at a place called Thornfield. 
So now we begin the next act of Jane's life. At Thornfield, there's a period where she meets the young French girl that she is the governess of, Adele. But she feels very isolated and alone. There aren't a lot of people at Thornfield. There isn't really anyone for her to talk to. She climbs to the top of the house and stands on the roof and thinks about how she still hasn't really found the arena for her desire for activity, to see the world, to experience things. But then one day, while Jane is out for a walk, she sees a man riding by on a horse. She sees him fall off the horse and rushes over to help. It turns out that this man is Mr. Rochester, and he runs Thornfield. The core of the book now is launched. A romance between Mr. Rochester brooding, a bit capricious, kind of a character, not conventionally handsome, but powerfully built, and Jane, his employee. There's an undercurrent also in Thornfield Hall of mystery because there's a woman who lives on the top floor of Thornfield Hall named Grace Poole, who rarely appears, but often makes these strange noises in the night. And often when Jane is feeling restless or anxious is when we get an episode having to do with Grace Poole. And once Rochester comes back, Grace Poole becomes much more of a, of a scary presence. She tries to burn Rochester in his bed. Someone comes to visit and then goes up to the third floor at night and Grace Poole bites him and attacks him with a knife. So there's this violent, crazy lady on the top floor, the proverbial mad woman in the attic. And we don't know who she is or why she's there or what she has to do with Mr. Rochester. In the meantime, Mr. Rochester falls in love with Jane. Jane falls in love with him. There's, you know, some back and forth, but they declare their love and he proposes marriage. They're ready to marry. Grace Poole pops into Jane's room the night before the wedding and tears her veil in half and Jane's a little freaked out, but they just all toddle off to the church, which is not that far from Thornfield Hall. And the minister says, you know, if anybody knows why these two should be not be united in wedlock, speak now or forever hold your peace. And someone says, they can't get married. Mr. Rochester's already married. Rochester starts gnashing his teeth because he's the kind of Byronic hero who gnashes his teeth when he's upset. Jane's in shock. They go back to Thornfield Hall, up to that third floor. And it turns out Grace Poole is actually the caretaker of Rochester's wife. And the woman who's been burning people in their beds and stabbing them and biting them is his wife, Bertha. Bertha Mason is her maiden name. And interestingly, he, she tends to get referred to as Bertha Mason rather than Bertha Rochester, even though Rochester did marry her. Rochester tells the story of how he was tricked into marrying a woman who um, was mentally ill, but wasn't told that she was mentally ill. And then he says, but the problem wasn't that I would have taken care of her. It was that she was also sexually profligate, degenerate. So 
he then proposes to Jane that she become his mistress. He says, look, I, I'm sorry. I, I just want, I love you so much. I, I didn't think it would be such a problem. I don't consider myself married. I would follow my own law. He's a bit of a romantic hero, not wanting to be constrained by convention. And he proposes that Jane go abroad with him and they just act as though they were married. And this poses a real conflict for Jane. She has to decide whether to follow her heart or her reason, whether to go with passion or stick with judgment. Jane decides that she has to maintain her self-respect and not give in to passion. She doesn't feel confident that Rochester will continue to be with her if they're not married. So she makes the difficult decision to not be his mistress. She then sneaks off in the morning, even though it breaks her heart. She's desperately in love with him. She does not want to cause him pain. And he's made very clear that it will be very painful to him if she leaves him. She doesn't take any of the clothes that he's bought her. She just leaves with a little bit of money. And she then goes into a carriage, gets carried far away, and then for three days wanders around barely able to eat. And so this is this is a moment in the novel where she undergoes a real, uh, almost a spiritual death and rebirth. She is freezing. She doesn't know who to turn to. She once again experiences herself as completely bereft and alone. But eventually she's taken in by two sisters and their brother who see something in her that makes them think that she's not just a crazy or criminal beggar. They find her work. And then, and this is a bit of a fairy tale twist in Jane Eyre, it turns out she's related to them. They're cousins. And not only that, but through them, she finds out that her one remaining living relative who lived in Madeira has died and made her his heir so that she now has quite a bit of money, enough money to be independent for the rest of her life. She shares it with them. The male, and you know, this part of the book takes up quite a lot of space and people tend to forget about it, but it's important. For the first time in her life, she has a family and she has financial independence without having to work for others in under circumstances that are somewhat humiliating. And most people agreed that being a governess was a very, very unhappy lot in life and that working conditions tended to be terrible for governesses. The Her male cousin is planning to become a missionary, a Christian missionary in India. And he starts training her to join him. And he proposes marriage, but he makes very clear he doesn't really love her. So if earlier Jane had to choose reason and self-respect and the rule of law over passion, now she has to turn down something that's all convention and all judgment with no passion. She keeps resisting marrying her cousin because she knows that she doesn't love him and he doesn't love her. And in many ways, the book is about the struggle to reconcile feeling and reason. She's being kind of hassled by her cousin to just finally agree to marry him. And she all of a sudden hears Rochester calling her name. 
She leaves the next day. She goes back to Thornfield. She finds that Thornfield has burnt down. She learns that during the fire, Bertha runs up to the roof of Thornfield and is running around madly. And then Rochester runs up there to try to save her. And Bertha runs away from him and leaps off the roof and falls to her death. She learns that Bertha set the entire house on fire and that in attempting to rescue her and other people in the house, Rochester got blinded and lost the use of one of his arms. She goes to find him. He's in a much smaller house. They redeclare their love. And of course, now he's free to marry because his wife has died. There is one thing that we need to understand when we read the book now is there was no legal, it was very hard to get divorced at this time, and you could not divorce your spouse for reasons of insanity. That was specifically noted in the law. But now they are free to marry, and they marry, famously, Jane says, reader, I married him, and they do live happily ever after. So how was this read? How was it read at the time? And, you know, how how has it been read uh, by literary interpreters till today? Everybody who reviewed Jane Eyre immediately recognized that they were dealing with an unusual work of enormous power. Most of them thought the book was really excellent and extraordinary. There were some critics, notably a woman named Lady Eastlake, who found the book really quite off-putting. She said that uh, Jane personified an unregenerate and undisciplined spirit, uh, accused her of being proud and ungrateful. It was almost as though Jane's Aunt Reed had written the review. But even Lady Eastlake ended up saying, it's still a remarkable book. So, you know, right away, people recognized that they were dealing with an unusually gifted author. The novel came out around 1848, just before 1848, a year of revolutions. And I think having a female character who expressed sort of revolutionary sentiments really ended up fitting with the time. Uh, Queen Victoria called Jane Eyre that intensely interesting novel. Since its initial publication, Jane Eyre has never gone out of print. The Brontes had their Victorian fans... Virginia Woolf wrote essays about the Brontes, famously compared Jane Austen and Charlotte Bronte and said, you know, the thing about Jane Austen is she's got a lot of control over her self, her writing, her novelistic worlds. Charlotte's too angry. Charlotte Bronte's too angry. She's, you know, and Virginia Woolf was pretty angry about a lot of stuff. So that was kind of intense. And I think that um, that set a little bit of a tone for decades to come, that Charlotte Bronte was this fiery, angry writer. And so when, uh, in general, I would say in the middle decades of the 20th century, a lot of great women writers stopped being taught in universities. Jane Austen, George Eliot, even um, certainly the Brontes, they started getting taught more in the 70s. The interest in the novel, I would say, falls into two related schools of thought that both have to do with the novel's relationship to feminism. So the book is seen as a feminist classic, 
And it's also seen as a very important site of the limits of white feminism. So what makes Jane Eyre uh, a feminist classic, a kind of, well, let's call it a white feminist classic, a classic of first wave white feminism, which begins around the 1840s in England and the United States especially. It features an angry, outspoken woman, which to this day, you don't see that much of in our culture, really, if you think about it. A lot of the examples of women, certainly in the 19th century, were caretakers. If you contrast Jane Eyre to the female characters in most Dickens novels, they're either victim prostitutes like Nancy and Oliver Twist, or they're extremely idealized figures who just give and give and give and smile and don't ask for anything because it's so great to just give of themselves all the time. And here's Jane Eyre who's pissed off, who wants more, who goes up to the top of Thornfield's roof and says, anyone who blame me, who likes, but I wanted more than I had. And she's got a good job in a fancy house with this cute little French girl who doesn't even like make too many demands on her. And she still wants more. And she goes on to outline a sort of feminist manifesto where she says, you know, girls want the same things that their brothers do. And what she means by that is she says they want freedom and they want an arena for action. We want to do something. Jane Eyre has been translated about 700 times into at least 59 languages. Jane Eyre has been adapted into film many, many times. It's actually hilarious because the novel emphasizes so much how plain she is and you know the world of film which has been so influential globally refuses to look at women unless they're beautiful and so the these movies are made where plain unattractive jane is cast you know with these actresses who i don't even know if we're supposed to believe that they're not incredibly gorgeous and they you know they're not wearing a lot of makeup but joan fontaine charlotte gainsburg uh the, it's it's uh they nobody has ever dared make a film version of jane eyre where jane really isn't pretty in some way but jane eyre has been adapted into a film quite regularly so it's constantly being reimagined for a new generation. In Jane Eyre, Bronte gave us a robust, layered character who fully embraces her complexity. She's crabby, difficult, and gets depressed. But she's also smart and passionate. And she claims the right to love and be loved because she is all these things, fully human. There is a constant sense in our culture, and certainly in Victorian culture as well, that a woman's main claim to being loved was to be physically attractive. And that a woman who wasn't physically attractive was just not going to be loved and was going to be alone. And Jane claims the right to love and be loved just by virtue of being human. Writ Large is produced by Jack Pombriant and me, Zachary Davis. Script editing is by Galen Beebe. We get help from Ferrandu. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Petchy. 
We're a member of LitHub Radio. Writ Large is a Lyceum original production. You can find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.